0: Listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. As I was saying, this is the last sermon in this summer series that uh, Mel and I have been preaching through, called "Miracles and Meals with Jesus." And my goal in these three sermons uh, was for us to be challenged to adopt Jesus' methodology for mission. As we've seen in the uh, previous sermons, Jesus had a method. He came eating and drinking. We found that in Luke chapter 7. And that was Jesus' method of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's the how of how he did things. And uh, Jesus has come and he's modeled this methodology. It's the way that he's preaching, proclaiming the king- kingdom, it's his method, it's his how, it's, it's how Jesus granted grace. It's, that was our first ser- or our first uh, sermon. It's how he cultivated community. That was our second sermon. And, and today we're going to see it's how he modeled mission. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of Luke, really f- focusing on the first 14 verses. But the center of this passage, the bullseye, if you will, that we're aiming for is in verses 12 to 14. And I'm going to read these first 14 verses for us here. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him him who had dropsy. and they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how the, they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. How would you define a poor person? How many poor people do you know? How many poor people have you met in your lifetime? These are tough questions. I feel the sting of them, and no doubt you do as well. I don't, I don't do this regularly. And truthfully, even if my memory were able, my memory is more like a sieve than a steel trap, um, even if I could remember, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I've ever really shared a meal with a single poor person. I, I've maybe bought a meal, a, home, a homeless person, a meal a couple of times in my life. But that's, uh, that's different than actually sharing a meal, which is what Jesus is calling us to do here. And this reveals a deeper problem. Jesus, I think, here wants sharing meals with the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to be a pattern in our lives. Not just a once-off, something that we do regularly. He wants this to be a regular part of our lives. And if you're like me, just inviting people over to share a meal is difficult enough. Never mind adding to that, inviting the poor. And no matter how you slice Jesus' words, no matter how how you reframe them or rephrase them, Jesus' words sting and convict. This week, Mother Teresa of Calcutta is going to be canonized as a saint, a woman who's dedicated her life to serving the poor in the slums of one of India's largest cities. And as a child, her mother taught and modeled Jesus' commands to share meals with the poor as she extended, as she opened her home up, to the city's destitute to come and dine with her family. She lived this out. And her counsel to her daughter was, never eat a single meal unless you are sharing it with others. And regardless of what you think about Mother Teresa, she lived out this command. She shared her meals with those who could not repay her. Is this what Jesus meant by inviting the poor the cripple, the lame, and the blind? Is, is this how we're to live out Jesus' words? Must we all, like Mother Teresa, leave our homes, our cities, and our countries and go to the poor and start sharing meals? Is that what Jesus is calling us to do? Before we begin to answer these questions, we must consider how we got to verse 13. How did we get to, to, the, to where Jesus is saying this or giving this command, and we we see at the beginning that this scene takes place at a Pharisee's house, but it's not an ordinary Pharisee. The house belongs to a ruler of the Pharisee, And, and Luke also gives us some important details. Luke tells us that this event occurs on a Sabbath. We are told that the Pharisees are watching him closely, And there just happens to be a man with dropsy present. So just picture Jesus walking into this scenario as he looks around and he sees these angry glances and feels the almost palpable hostility. The conversations are muted, they're short, they're terse. Jesus asks how you're doing and he gets this this short, quick answer. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but Jesus does. He immediately recognizes that this is a setup. And we know this is true because he immediately addresses the elephant in the room by asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He knows they're testing him. He knows they want to know whether he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. These Pharisees are not Jesus' friends. But the Pharisees' animosity doesn't come out of nowhere either. In the previous chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus speaks against the Pharisees five times. He first tells the Pharisees that they're as bad as the Galileans in verses 1 through 5. He doesn't directly say it to the Pharisees, but it is certainly in the context of the Pharisees. Chapter 13 is being contrasted with Jesus speaking or addressing his disciples. In chapter 13, Jesus is addressing the leaders of Israel. And the problem or the question that arises at the beginning of chapter 13 is that there's these Galileans who have been sacrificed on the altar by Pilate and their blood has mingled, been mingled with the sacrifices and he's profaned the the altar and the question that the jews are asking is are they worse sinners than than normal people because of what's happened to them you see what's going on in the mind of a of a jew is god punishes sinners and these sinners suffered worse than normal than other sinners than regular sinners therefore they must be worse and so they conclude that when When bad things happen to you, and when really bad things happen to you, you must be a wicked sinner. And Jesus corrects this error, and he he says to the Pharisees, you are in the same boat as they are, and unless you repent, you too will perish. In verses 6 through 9 of chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable against the Jewish leaders, comparing them to fruitless fig trees that need to be cut down. In verses 10 through 17, Jesus has a very similar encounter with a leader in the local synagogue over over a Sabbath healing, and he calls the Jewish leader a hypocrite. He calls him out for being more compassionate towards his donkey than he is towards the disabled woman that Jesus heals. In verse 22 through 30, he tells the Jewish leaders that they're going to be cast out of the kingdom of God when the Messiah returns. And then finally, in verses 31 through 35, the verses immediately preceding chapter 14, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that they have refused to listen to God. So God has forsaken them. This, this is the setting. This is the, the lead up. This is why the Jewish leaders are hostile to Jesus. So when we get to chapter 14, the Pharisees are itching for a fight, and we're left to wonder, why why is Jesus even having dinner with these Pharisees? It's a little bit like Donald Trump going to Mexico to talk about who's going to pay to build the wall. Why are you going, Donald? I mean, do you you seriously think that Mexico even wants you in its country? The Pharisees don't like Jesus, and so you've got to wonder why he's even there. And the opening scene is simple. Jesus recognizes the trap as he lays his own snare. He exposes their hypocrisy and their hardness of heart toward the sick. The question they ask, is it lawful to to heal on the Sabbath? Um, The question Jesus asks, if the Pharisees answer yes, then they absolve Jesus. Right? He's perfectly okay to heal on the Sabbath. But if they answer no, then they reveal how heartless they really are. But their silence thunders with their self-righteousness and hatred. They are so concerned with keeping the law that they treat their oxen better than they treat the sick. Now, On on the surface, it seems obvious that the Pharisees don't like Jesus because of the things that he says about them. But if you know anything about Jesus, if you've read very much of what Jesus says, then you also know that Jesus doesn't treat the Pharisees any differently than he treats anyone else. I mean, in John 4, Jesus essentially calls the woman at the well an adulterer. He just comes out and says it. He tells the rich ruler that he's greedy and he needs to go and sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. He tells Peter that that, uh, when Peter says he'll die for Jesus, he tells Peter that instead he's going to deny him. Jesus is blunt with everyone. So why do the Pharisees take such an exception to what he says? And the answer is quite simple. They don't believe him. They just don't believe him. They don't believe he has the authority to do the things that he does or say the things that he says. And don't forget, Jesus has forgiven people's sins. Something the Pharisees believe only God has the authority to do. He is eaten and associated regularly. In fact, his followers consist of sinners and tax collectors. And he's healed people on the Sabbath. In the Pharisee's mind, this is tantamount to breaking the law. And and, and that phrase, breaking the law, rolls off my tongue like ice cream out of a cone on a hot summer day. But for a Pharisee, he has built his entire life around the law. His foundation is keeping the law. And Jesus has placed himself in authority over the law, and the Pharisees are getting fed up. They can't control Jesus. He's a wild card, and he doesn't play by the rules, and they don't like it. If they believed Jesus was who he claimed to be, that is, God's son, they would be obliged to obey him. But they refuse to believe that he's the Messiah or the Son of God. And it's a little bit like asking which comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's hard to know if the Pharisees, the reason the Pharisees don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, if it's because of the things that he says, or if they don't like the things that he says because they don't believe he's the Son of God. But either way... The Pharisees don't believe, and they don't like Jesus. And I wonder if some of you here are doubters, like the Pharisees, who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer and Ruler of the Cosmos. Maybe maybe there's someone here who doesn't really care about what Jesus says. You're indifferent to His words. You think he's a a wise man, but his words are not authoritative. You don't have to obey all of them. You can pick and choose what you want, what what you listen to, what you take. Well, you're entitled to your opinion, and you're free to hold it, but make no mistake, your attitude is unbelief. You don't believe Jesus has authority to make demands on your life. You don't believe that he's the author and creator of all things, and therefore has the authority to require an accounting of you when you stand before him one day. And just like the Pharisees, you don't believe Jesus either. Maybe there are some here who would say that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and agree that he has authority to say what he says and command what he commands. But here's the thing. If you don't do what Jesus says, then you've got to ask yourself, do I really believe in him? you may be like the man that James describes in James chapter 2, a man or a woman with demon-like faith, a man or woman who believes facts about Jesus but is not changed by Jesus. If this is true of you, then you too are like the Pharisees. Uh, Perhaps... Some of you are feeling badly right now, like like me. I know I felt pretty badly when I read (laughs) read these words. Um, These things that Jesus says sting. But the unique thing about Christians, this is absolutely unique about Christians, is that when they are confronted by Jesus' words, they feel their sting every single time. It cuts deep. Jesus' words cut us deeply. And there's a good reason for it. It's because Christians know they're not perfect. You become a Christian and all of a sudden, all of your sin struggles don't disappear. You don't start living perfectly. And every Christian knows this. And so when we're confronted with our sin or with our unbelief, which is also sin, Christians always feel guilty because they are guilty. But... The difference is when we tell Christians the gospel, and you can know you're a Christian if, if you respond this way. When, when we tell Christians the gospel, when we tell ourselves the gospel, we turn to Jesus and find rest in him for our weary souls. The striving ceases. But before we go there, we'll get there, but before, before we go there, um, Before we get rest from our guilt, before we get the rest that our souls crave, we we, we need to look at what comes next. Immediately after Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness, he observes that these Pharisees are jockeying like horses on a racetrack for position, So he begins to teach and exposes their pride and their desire for honor and recognition. Then he makes an authoritative statement about the nature of the kingdom of God. The kind of statement that the Pharisees probably hate because it's made with such authority. And Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself, in verse 11, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does, why does Jesus say this? Like, does it just come out of the blue? Why does he expose the Pharisees' hypocrisy and self-righteousness? Is, is he being, is Jesus being petty? Is he, is he trying to get back at them? You and I might be tempted to be petty, but I don't think Jesus is being petty. Is he, is he angry? Is he upset at their, at the way that they're colluding against him? And, I think the same answer is true. I, I Probably not. The reason, I think, is simple in the present context. Jesus is just witnessing what's going on. The, the naked ambition and pride of the Pharisees. And he's responding as he has done with every person that he meets. This is just Jesus being consistent. Every person he meets, he confronts Sin. That's what it means. To meet Jesus is to be confronted with your sin. Jesus never panders. He never flatters. He always speaks the truth. And he says what people need to hear. He speaks compassionately when the situation requires and severely when it's necessary, but it's always the truth, and, it's, and he is never quiet. Jesus is never in a place where he is silent. He is always speaking because things need said. And Jesus still speaks this way. If you read your Bible regularly, you have heard him shout at you confronting your sin. And if you've heard him speak gentle words of comfort, if you've been reading your Bible, you've heard him speak gentle words of comfort during trials. That's just how Jesus is. That's why he's confronting their sin. That's why he says what he says. But there's also a broader reason for why Jesus relentlessly confronts the Pharisees' sin. It's because they're broken and they're blind to their brokenness. Sin blinds us, especially pride and self-righteousness. Let's face it, when you and I even think about the poor, it always accompanies the word help. We help the poor. We minister to the poor. We serve the poor. We feed the poor. We care for the poor. We give to the poor. And it's not that all of that is wrong. We say these things because the poor need things and the rich have things to give them. But it always puts us in a position of giving, providing, and benefiting the poor. And we see ourselves as providers, as saviors. And it blinds us to our own desperate need. We need, we need to know more than anything else that we are broken. And when we only see ourselves as givers and providers, then we fail to see that we are just like the poor. We fail to see that they have something we need. We need to know that we are broken and we can't see our brokenness when we have all that we need. We need to know that we're needy. And so we need the poor. Jesus knew this. And this is the upside-down kingdom. We are drowning in our abundance, and we call it blessing when when in reality it blinds us to our own need. The kingdom of God operates on on entirely different principles, and failure to live by those principles puts us outside of the kingdom. Jesus is telling the Pharisees about the true nature of the kingdom of God. He's not doing it because he's being petty or angry. He's trying to communicate, he's trying to get them to see. They're blind, they can't see. It doesn't come to the healthy and wealthy. It doesn't come to the mighty and powerful. It doesn't come to the rich and the famous. It comes to the sick. It comes to the weak. It comes to the humble. It comes to the lowly. The Warren Buffetts, the Taylor Swifts, the Justin Trudeaus must realize that their wealth, their fame, and their power is a hindrance to the kingdom of heaven. They need to become, just like you and I need to become, poor and so they and we need the poor. And don't miss the application. You and I need to become poor. We need the poor. You need the poor. And not just to help them. So we're moving from the spiritual poverty of the Pharisees to the real question at hand. Who is at your table. Jesus moves seamlessly from dinner guest to host, the host himself, and it almost appears like he's just itching to pitch a, you know, pick a fight with the Pharisees. And I, I think I've answered that, but the gloves are off now, and Jesus appears to be insulting his host. He's moved from his, you know, from the, the guest now to the host. He's making sure that he covers everyone. And as he looks around, he sees that the host is guilty of the same things that his guests are, are after. He is after position, he is after reputation, and he's after the praise of men. he is so concerned with, for his reputation among his peers that he has vetted the invitation list. And he's invited those who will bolster his reputation or pad his checkbook or be able to repay him in some way. And just like his colleagues, he is caught up in his own pride and self-promotion. He is totally and completely self-consumed and self-centered. And Jesus exposes this and reprimands him for it. Now, Jesus' behavior is totally unacceptable in any culture. Nobody has the right to go to a dinner and question the motives of a of a host and then (laughs) insult the guests so what are we what are we to make of jesus's actions is is jesus wrong here i don't think anybody probably thinks that well maybe somebody does but has he gone too far that's maybe more legitimate that question Or is is this maybe a prescription for us? Maybe we're supposed to act like this. Maybe we're supposed to, maybe Jesus is modeling for us how we're supposed to engage with the world at meals by asking awkward questions and offering scathing rebukes. My wife would think that that's probably true. I I take it literally. Um, And then, you know, boldly correcting them with countercultural teaching, doing just what Jesus does. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I have thoughts, and, and I'll walk you through some of those thoughts, but these are tough questions. We ought to ask these questions. They're, they're there. But when we step back and we look at the big picture, I think it will help us to determine or distinguish the forest from the trees. Notice what Jesus tells the Pharisees to do in, in verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you now. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What's going on here? Well, the most obvious thing is that Jesus has just given another principle of the kingdom. Which is this. Desire future repayment. Desire to be repaid in the future and not in the present. Do what is right Now, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. But at a deeper level, Jesus is telling the Pharisees to leverage their dinners for the kingdom. He wants them to maximize their profits. That's what he wants. Jesus is a businessman. But he he wants them to maximize their spiritual profits. But we can't separate the physical and the spiritual, right? It is actually what you do here that produces treasure in heaven, spiritual reward. It's actually taking care of, feeding, inviting in, welcoming the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind in this life, really, physically, that produces spiritual, spiritual reward in the next, it, it, at the resurrection of the just all their earthly efforts to gain power, wealth, and fame will be repaid in this life and only in this life. Right? If, if we spend ourselves, all of our time, all of our efforts trying to make this life comfortable, we get repaid right now. And once they are repaid, that's it, there's no more. But if they will accept it, God has a mission for them. Talking about the Pharisees here. But it's it's true for us as well. And the mission is this, to bring justice to the poor and freedom and to to give freedom to the captives and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants meals to be places where this is happening. Meals ought to be places of mission. But did it occur to you that, that Jesus is not following his own advice? So who's... He's having dinner with Pharisees, not the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And why not? Is Jesus exempt? Well, this reveals the heart of the text and the upside-down nature of the gospel. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to tell us a parable, and you're probably everybody here is, even unbelievers, are going to be familiar with this parable um, about two sons, both of whom are lost, and both of whom the father is seeking. And the first son is found when he comes to the end of of himself, and he realizes that his life is a wreck, and that he's not worthy to be called his father's son. But the other son in the parable, the older son, the one who has stayed, is just as lost as his younger brother. His pride has fueled festering bitterness towards his younger brother and robbed him of all joy and compassion. There's not a shred of joy or compassion for his younger brother. Do you recognize the resemblance here? Jesus wanted us to recognize the resemblance between the older brother. He wanted the Pharisees to recognize the resemblance between the older brother and them. Their pride has blinded them, but Jesus knows this. Jesus knows it. He's not And what's he doing? He's going after them. He's pursuing them. Jesus is there, not because this is easy. This is an easy street. Jesus doesn't, you know, get off on on confrontation. I I really don't believe so. He's there because they need him, and he he has to pursue them. Otherwise, nobody's going to bring them to him. Jesus loves the Pharisees just like he loves the sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees need saving just like the sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, knows that these Pharisees need to have their pride and self-righteousness exposed. And that's tough work. This is a tough chapter. This is, he, Jesus is doing tough work. He's in the trenches. tax collectors and sinners don't need to be told that they are sinners they know it everyone around them knows it but the sin of pride and and self righteousness blinds us to our desperate need we are the same as the pharisees pride makes us think that we are better than we really are it causes us to look outward to look around us to compare ourselves with others and we we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. We say, Oh, I'm not as bad as so and so. We do this all the time. We, I, I heard it this week. I was at a person's, a lady's, an unbeliever's house. Um, and, you know, she was, she was, uh, she's in a house on the lake. And she was just describing how she doesn't spend as much money on renov- renovations as a friend of hers spends on renovations. And, you know, it was comparing herself to others in order to make her feel better. I I mean, we all do this regularly. And pride makes us think that we're better than we really are. And so we need the poor. We need the crippled, the lame, and the blind because they can show us that we are needy, that we are broken. And when we see a poor, a crippled, a lame, or a blind person, our first thought ought to be that is me. That's me there. I, I see myself in that person. That person takes the blinders off of my eyes. And it's easy for us to get caught up thinking only about the material world, but, but we are spiritual beings. And we're, if we're just the least bit honest with ourselves, we know that our lives are disasters, or if they're not disasters today, then they're going to be disasters tomorrow. And all all of this, everything that I've said here, can just leave us way down with guilt. And I I haven't given you much gospel yet, and so guilt is probably the right feeling to, to have about now. After all, even though Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, you feel the sting for not having the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind in your homes. And as I said earlier, this is the right response for a believer. In fact, you should be very concerned if you haven't felt guilty about what you've heard this morning. But there is hope for you, and there is rest for your weary souls. The gospel says that we are sinners, that we are proud, self-righteous, arrogant, self-centered people, just like the Pharisees. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel offers true hope, that if you turn to Jesus and trust in him, you get his righteousness. Only Jesus perfectly loved the poor. And the lame, the crippled, and the blind. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you get all of his perfection. God credits everything that Jesus did to your account. And that provides relief. It gives you rest for your soul so that you no longer have to strive. There's no more striving. Your account is full in God's eyes if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus you are perfect you can't do anything more to please him you can't do one action in the rest of your life that would make him more pleased than he is with you right now so there's no more guilt There's no more desire for the praise and recognition of men. The desire to be repaid in this life is diminishing. Yes, it's still there, and yes, you still fight, but the grip is lessening. Freedom from its control is increasing. But I don't want to take the teeth out of Jesus' words either. We still need to feel their sting. On the one hand, we fail to do what Jesus tells us to do, and when we do, we go to Jesus for forgiveness. But we're also being transformed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to obey all that He's commanded us. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to share a meal with the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? This is a A a very big topic for Christians. We should be very concerned. This is our turf. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We should know this one inside and out. We should be wrestling with this question daily and laboring to fulfill it. To be a believer is first of all to recognize that we are poor and needy crippled, lame, and blind, and then our hearts are changed to want to go out to those people as a result of God's love just simply boiling up, welling over, spilling out into the lives of others. Who are these people? Well, they're the marginalized in society. They're the people who struggle, whose rights have been violated. These are the people who cannot stand up for themselves, who are too busy just trying to survive to get to the courts to seek their rights, or maybe the courts won't even hear their cases. Who are the marginalized in our society? Well, I'll get you started, but this is a question that you and I together need to answer and wrestle through because there's, there's a corporate answer to it, and there's a very personal answer as well. You're going to run into these kinds of people in your life. In fact, you need to look for these people in your life so that you can have them over for a meal, so that you can do mission. So, who are they? They're the, they're the I mean, at this, here's just a start they're the single mothers, they're the people losing their homes, they're the homeless. There are First Nations people. There are the elderly, the refugees and immigrants. There are anyone that the police profile. There's someone who has lost something, whether that is through death or business, finances or a job. All sorts of people are in a position that they can't repay you. And... Jesus wants you to have those people who can't repay you to share a meal with you in your home. That's what he wants. That's how he came accomplishing his mission, by eating and drinking with sinners. And he wants you to do the same thing. Jesus closes this meal with a parable, and I want to do the same thing by looking at Um, three people who excuse their way out of the kingdom. The last thing that Luke includes in this meal encounter is a parable about the great banquet. The master has invited all of his guests, but his invited guests begin to make excuses. One has to go inspect a field, another a yoke of oxen, and a third says he has to go see his wife. Without going into great detail, the excuses are, are lame I, but the point, I think, is that they, they ha- they've excused themselves from the kingdom of God. They chose the rewards and pleasures of this world over eternal treasure. And Jesus is warning the Pharisees that their pride, their desire for honor, their desire for repayment is choosing, that is choosing this world, and it will ultimately excuse them from the kingdom they're making excuses and their excuses excuse them from the kingdom there are no get into free heaven cards no one is born with a right or with automatic citizenship into heaven jesus lays out the principles proud people people who exalt themselves are out Humble, the humble are in. People who seek their reward on earth from their friends and family are out. They get their reward now. But those who do good, who welcome the poor into their homes, they are in. And they will receive a future reward in heaven. What about you? Are you excusing yourself from the kingdom of God? Are you looking for your reward in this life? Is your hope in your bank account, your satisfaction in what you can enjoy in this life, your family? Or have you seen your need? Have you seen that you are poor, crippled, lame, and blind? And are you seeking future repayment as you welcome people to your table who cannot repay you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Uh, We thank you, Father, we thank you that Jesus came uh, to this earth, that he took on flesh, that he humbled himself, he walked the talk, he left it all behind, he forsook the riches of, of glory, and, and took on the lowliest of forms. And he came and he served us. And God, I, I just want to pray that you would give us, the, that you would open our hearts. That we would see Jesus' grace, all the grace and beauty of his of his love, of his affection, of his humility for us. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to to be like Jesus, to do those same things, to obey. Father, all the power, All your power dwells, resides in each one of us who trust Jesus. Your spirit lives in us. We have the power to put these things into practice. God, help us as a people. God, I pray that we would would have such a witness in this city that though they they may hate the kinds of lives that we live, the the ways that our, our lives and our beliefs condemn them, God, they would see our good deeds and and not be able to deny that our good deeds point to a, a good God and a righteous Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.